Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And we have an email for you. We're, we're going to stick to one this time. Mm. It was in connection with the study or the research we talked about on fasting, how uh, restricting your caloric intake for a period of hours, usually it's 8 to 24 hours, generally a good thing, but as you age... Doesn't work as well. Doesn't work as well because your body can't switch back over into that healthy feeding mode and you get stuck and your muscles waste away. It's just, it, it can be unhealthy for you mm. and you should talk to a doctor about it. We got an email from, we refer to him as our, our poet. Yeah. Phil. Yeah. Phil the poet. He sent us beautiful- Every time he writes to us, I remember that poem he wrote to us. Because we took that poem and, convert- and, and sang it. Yeah. Remember my children playing in the unknown salt marsh the many years ago. Grateful that the toilet and the faucet make no strange sounds. No, 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 no more strange sounds. We made a song out but of it. It was a good poem, without even, even without the song. No, poem. it was beautiful really yeah. legitimately beautiful he wrote thanks for a great episode about the dangers and benefits of fasting you guys gave good advice 10 years ago i lost 30 pounds in four months at age 62 dropping from 179 to 149 pounds because i was harvesting firewood all alone all winter without eating enough to sustain the workload my doctor said i was eating around 3,000 calories per day but needed 5,000 to fuel the work. It has taken 10 years to gain back muscle mass lost in one difficult winter. Although I will never be as strong as before this period of accidental fasting, I'm 170 pounds now and in fairly good shape at 72, happily eating five meals per day. <laughs> All the best, your friend, Phil. I'm wondering how many trees he took down, how much wood, because harvesting firewood for three months straight, you're going to come up with... Quite a few, quite a few pieces of wood. I have a very romantic idea of what that looks like, all day long chopping wood. But yeah, if you're burning five thousand calories a day, you're doing really hard work. Wow, incredibly hard work. I remember reading about Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps no, it's... burning ten thousand per day, but that was an extreme exercise regimen plus cold water. That is that. That's the kind of work that will injure your back. I'm hoping that despite the the muscle loss that your back was okay, Phil. True, true, yeah. So just a reminder, make sure, especially as you age, mm-hmm. that your caloric intake mass, uh, matches the, the output or what you're burning. Yeah, a couple, uh, a couple shorties out of Australia studies here. Um, just under half of Australian workers would be willing to sacrifice part of their salary to be able to work from home. It's according to a survey conducted at the University of South Australia. The questionnaire, filled out by 1,100 Aussies, found that 45% of workers down under would be willing to give up the equivalent of 6,000 U.S. dollars in annual wages. A fifth of the people asked said that they would give up $24,000, or 30% of their salary, for being able to work from home. Uh, okay, keep going. Yeah. According to the study, female workers were 30% more likely to forego salary than their male counterparts. Also, workers between the ages of 30 and 50 were more likely to give up cash compared to other age groups. Of all the groups surveyed, it was couples with children who were prepared to sacrifice the most of their salaries. The researchers said that the COVID-19 pandemic was the driving force behind a revolution in Australians working from home. In 2016... 
Around 5% of workers were doing their jobs remotely on Census Day in 2021, so five years later. That figure rose to 21%. 5% to 21? From 5 all the way up to quadruple. Four, four times the number of people. The lead authors say that their study is the latest indication that the trend will continue. Quote, positive effects on well-being, work-life balance, health, as well as greater flexibility and personal freedom. Finally, lower costs and higher convenience will keep people doing their jobs at home in Australia as well as around the world. I was just going to say, this is not an Australian phenomenon. This no. is a... a l- Worldwide ongoing debate. And 30%? They're willing to forego 30% of their salary in order to work from home? I'm not not too thrilled with this research, to be honest. It's the first time hearing of it, and I don't really like it because... It's, this is, a, this is a, a, a labor struggle that is happening right now in real time. It's the big debate. Yeah. Companies around the world, institutions around the world are requesting that their employees come back into the office. The employees don't want to come back. They're saving time, resources. Uh, they're staying healthier by That's working right. from it's, home. It's way better for their health, physical and right. mental health. And of course, everyone's different on whether they like working from home or not, but a lot of people do. What this quantifies is how much companies can bargain with employees to allow them to stay home. You see what I'm saying? Right now, it's kind of like the salary for the position is the salary, whether you're at home or at work. And this indicates a future where you apply for a job and they say, well, it, you know, the office version is is worth this much if you come to the office with us. And if you want to work from home, you can do that for 20% less salary. Yeah, well, one would hope that it, it, it comes down to productivity, what you actually do, the work you do, not the time you spend either in the office or at home, right? Right. That's what it should be about, but well, it seems here... Ultimately. Hopefully the productivity doesn't, isn't the same, just... Yeah. yeah. Studies yeah. were... I, I mean, studies where you're asking people how much money are you willing to fo- forego for X, sometimes it's interesting to look at who's funding that research and why. The way, the way I understood it, it's simply the University, University of South Australia, but uh, I should look into that. <laughs> yeah. the, the next one here is also from Australia. Uh, eating nuts may help men enhance the quality of their sperm, according to an analysis led by Monash University in this Melbourne. Is, this is, uh, you, you mentioned this headline to me. That's all I know, but that's, that's just... Hold on, hold on. The team was searching far and wide for any studies on how nuts influence sperm and came across two randomized clinical trials looking at 223 healthy males aged 18 to 35. Mm -hmm. In the first trial, they ate 75 grams of whole-shelled English walnuts every day for 12 weeks when compared to a control group that ate a similar diet, just without the nuts. The nut-eating group had higher sperm motility and better morphology. So more moving around Mm -hmm. and better shape and size, Mm -hmm. less abnormal or messed up sperm. The second group ate 30 grams of walnuts, 15 grams of almonds, and 15 grams of hazelnuts every day for 14 weeks. Same results. The nut eaters had better sperm with regard to motility and morphology. In both groups, there was no difference with regard to how much. So sperm counts were the same, just big differences in motility and morphology. The study authors said both groups, they... They had they were eating the same diet, mm-hmm. Western style diets, which, funnily enough, the researchers referred to as not exactly healthy. Oh, right. But the, yeah, the important yeah. part is that they were both eating the same thing. Just one group was eating two handfuls of nuts more each day, and 
it was controlled for any other factors, any other lifestyle factors uh, that could have contributed to it. Right. So the, the assumption... Thus, they were able to conclu- con- conclude that if you eat nuts, two handfuls of nuts every day, and make no other changes, it could have this impact on your fertility if, if you're looking for that. And the assumption has to be that the extra caloric intake or fat intake is... Um, it's not that they're eating all those nuts in addition to all the other food that they're eating. They're probably reducing other foods from their Western diet and replacing it with healthier fats, healthier. I would assume so. But, um, but what, what they said is that it, it's about the omega-3 polyunsaturated fats and the natural minerals and vitamins and something called polyphenols mm-hmm. that are in these nuts, hazelnuts, walnuts, and almonds that could have an effect on reproductive health. They don't know exactly why. But that was those were the, the three different kinds of nutrients inside of nuts that that in their mind could mm-hmm. could lead to this. Interesting. And I'm just going to assume that they and this could have looked be, at sperm quality months down the line because it takes months for yeah. So 12 weeks after they stopped, so during and after, and it the the changes re- remained the same. Hmm. So yeah, if this is the answer. Just eating a couple of handfuls of almonds. Well, yeah. The, the, again, the caveat: who who financed that? Sometimes, whenever it's about food or uh, these studies, um, coffee does X, Y, or Z for you, and it's usually positive. Or, f- or, or drink one glass of red wine per day, and um, you'll be the healthiest ever. I always wonder who's funded by Dionysus. Yeah, the, you've got to you've got to look and assuming that these were studies done for the right reasons, then it's something for people to consider who are looking to have children, basically. I mean, I'm out of that game. I think you're out of that game. I, th- this would make me want to never eat a nut ever again. <laughs> well, or, yeah, just eat them for other reasons because they taste good. Anyway, I'm going to talk about um, a health study real quickly with the gigantic caveat. It's basically two studies in one, 12 people involved in each one. Mm-hmm. Wow, 12, it's very small. Very small sample size. 12 in the first study, 12 in the second. Yeah. A total of five women, and they were only in the first study. So it's a mostly male study. These are people who are about university-aged, so keep that all in mind. Mm-hmm. And what they did in these two studies is they wanted to see, look, if people are sleep-deprived, yeah. is there any, can, can, you, can you make their tired brains function better? With coffee. If you could, yeah. Is there a health? Is there a health I mean, it's not <laughs> necessarily unhealthy. Yeah. yeah, there are lots of ways to do it. One way to do it or to consider doing it is exercise. 20 minutes of okay. exercise in this case, in the case of these two studies, stationary bike, and in and one group did it, the other group didn't? Or how'd they do this? It was interesting because it's such a small sample size. I thought there's no way you have six doing it and six not doing it okay. as a control. And they used the participants in the experiment as their own control. So one time they came in sleep deprived yeah. and took these tests yeah. before and after hopping on the stationary bike. Mm-hmm. Another time they came in beautifully rested and, and did the same thing. So the people were their own control. Okay, so they, they, they looked at the effect when you're sleep deprived that exercise has on you. Right, compared, compared to when, when you, you are not sleep deprived, and then and then you hop on the exercise okay. bike. All right, yeah. Cool. And what was interesting is if a couple of different graphs, um, but when they were not sleep deprived, and this was having more than se- seven hours of sleep, a normal night's sleep, there wasn't. That was a surprise for me. There wasn't much of an of a jump in your cognitive ability to do these tests. They were math tests, or you're pairing symbols together, or you're reacting to things left hand, right hand. The exercise didn't help that much. If you're sleep deprived, and they defined it there as you basically had to go to bed after 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. and wake up before 7 a.m. Okay, five hours. Yeah, a lot of a lot of video gamers will understand that that sleep concept. Well, there are all kinds of reasons <laughs> to stay up that late. <laughs> um, you 
then the cognitive improvement was pretty significant. I'm not going to go th through each of the five tests because the measurement was how many of the tasks could they accomplish within the allotted time in minutes. Mm -hmm. And so it was, a, it was a flat number. Did it jump from 20 to 25 or 40 to, to 50? But in just about every category, the number goes up. If you've, if you've done... In both groups? Or only if you... Really, mostly for the sleep-deprived group. Okay. That was the one that was far more, much more dramatic. Got it. And so that's the big takeaway from, from this. If you, if you want, let's say you had a bad night's sleep yeah. and you have some test the following morning, this would be really relevant to the students out there who have to take tests and you've got this tired, foggy brain. We know right that feeling. Right before the tests go for a run? Or? Uh, 20 minutes of, in this case, it was a stationary bicycle, but something equivalent that you should see a boost. Now, I think the way they did the study, it was mostly based in England, but in connection with, with Japan, they had to take the test, I believe, right after or, or even during the exercise. Okay. And so it's it's not something you can replicate if you're going to a university and you're not going to be jogging in place. You, could, you could run in place. <laughs> you could try it. Um, and they just one, the, one part about the second study, the first study was partial sleep deprivation. The other one was total for one night. Mm -hmm. So partial sleep deprivation, that was three nights straight. Mm -hmm. For total sleep depriv deprivation, um, big drop, right? People are not doing well on these tests. And again, it goes up significantly if they exercise. So if you've pulled an all-nighter all -nighter, for, for any reason, then go ahead and exercise very quickly before the test. And that's that's one way. I mean, you mentioned coffee. There are other ways to get yourself back back ready for this. Yeah. But but exercise is really good. I'll, really I'll just, helpful. I'll, yeah, I'll just give you, for anyone wanting to look into the study, it's called The Effects of Sleep Deprivation, Acute Hypoxia and Exercise on Cognitive Performance, a Multi-Experiment Combined Stressors Study in the Journal of Physiology and Behavior. That hypoxia means a lack of oxygen. They also threw mm -hmm. that into the equation. It's not really worth mentioning, though. More important is that if you've had bad sleep, a quick jolt of exercise will get your brain fitter. For how long, I don't know. No, that, that's huge. I, that, many times in my life, that, that would have helped me. Sticking with scores on cognitive tests, um, having a sibling is bad news for your cognitive development. What? But only if you are the first or second born in your family. Oh, so if it's a huge family, you're, you're used to the idea of more. Hold on, hold on. Reach, researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, were unhappy with the methodology of previous work on siblings, which they said was constrained by limited observation spans. So they looked at 30 years of longitudinal data to see what happens to children when they gain a sister or brother. Do they perform better or worse on cognitive assessment tests? The UCLA analysis shows that sibling additions are only important to first and second born children's cognitive development. For third born and later, there is no effect on cognitive development. Also, for those first and second born children, the effect on cognitive development gets smaller with each addition to the family. The scientists were also looking into effects on socio-behavioral development and concluded that having an older sibling is beneficial, but gaining a younger sibling increases behavioral problems. I'm just trying to think this through. So the it's so if child you number are, two. Child number two is at the expense of child number one. Yes. Cognitively. And, and child number three is also at the expense of, of child, child, number, child two. number two. Child number four is not at all at the expense of child number three. Child number three is and at a way totally lower to expense this. to child number two and even lower expense to child number one. Hmm. They were the, the data, there have been tests and experiments done and studies done on this, but only looking at 
like they said, limited observation spans, so only a couple of years, almost like cross-sectional studies. They are looking at data from 1979 onwards and checking you, using performances on cognitive tests what happens to these kids when they get a sibling, a second sibling, a third sibling, a fourth sibling, a fifth sibling. So there you got it. Yeah. So I guess with that in mind, I would just like to apologize to my older sister. Meg, I'm, I'm sorry that I made you not as smart as you could have been. You seem smart, but I guess you had more potential and I took it away from you. Although maybe just, sorry, maybe to make myself feel better, if instead of me, a dog had come along that took away their attention or longer work hours or other things upsetting, you know, the normal scene. Right, I mean, how about the, the real takeaway here is just have a gigantic family. You what, know? Wait, what, like, like, before, after like number 200 three, years ago? Four, five, six, seven, have 10, 15 kids. You have come. You won't have an, an effect on their cognitive abilities. You have completely. Cognitive abilities. And their socio, uh, their social behavior will be better. Because you'll have like 14 different older siblings to help you deal with your problems. Are we starting a new religion right now? Or a, a science unscripted? We're growing our user base, our fan base, our listeners, by encouraging them to have 15 children at a time. No. Interesting research, Gabe. What is that? Because it's a, it's a huge, long one. Um, with lots of data points. Yeah, it's gigantic. If you want to look at it yourself, it's called The Effects of Siblings on Cognitive and Socio-Behavioral Development, put together by four researchers at mm -hmm. the University of California, Los Angeles. Anything you want to say to your younger brother, Gabe? I have an older brother, oh, and I would older, just like to thank him for the help that he's given me socio-behaviorally <laughs> over the years. He's, he's been great. I love him more than anything else on Earth. Pretty much. Science Unscripted.